Well, here we are. You can see in this space the, the evidence of what happened here the other night. Wasn't Faithtoberfest just incredible? I mean, yes. Faithtoberfest, wow, woo! Oh, wow. I, I, I always love Faithtoberfest, but it felt so special getting to be back here three years later and picking that up and doing that and being together and celebrating God's goodness together. What a joy. What a joy. As we were, we're taking it down, and, and we have such dedicated people. I'm so thankful for all of you that helped to, to take things down, put things up, to be here the whole bit. Everything went so well. But it reminded me of a time that it didn't go so well in an event I was organizing. I, I, I remember back when I was at Lindenwood, I had a group of students, and one of their projects for the class that I was teaching was to organize a fundraiser. And so we would pick out a charity, and usually we'd work with New City Fellowship and help with their programs. They have some wonderful programs to help people out of poverty and help pull neighborhoods out of poverty and share the gospel with them in the midst of that. Just a wonderful, wonderful thing. But that would usually be what we'd fund. We'd, we'd raise money, and then the students would go and actually spend a weekend going down into North St. Louis and helping repair homes and, and do things. And it, it was a wonderful thing. And the way that we did the fundraiser was a dodgeball tournament. And there were dodgeball courts on campus, and so we'd organize it. And there would be some prizes that different businesses around the area would donate and the whole bit. And, and the, the assignment for the students was to organize the whole thing, to get the donations, to organize the sign-up forms, to sell the tickets, the whole bit, and then, of course, to run the event. Well, I was supposed to be there as one of the two professors involved in, in stu- with the students that were doing this, to make sure everything went smoothly. The other professor couldn't be there that night, so I was the only professor there. Uh, so we had these students running it. They did a great job, but it got done, and it got done a little late. It was like 11 o'clock, and they were ready to go back and do the assignment for tomorrow morning they hadn't gotten to yet, or you know those sorts of things. You know how it goes. And, and so the next thing I know, I, I'd carried a bunch of things that had been used decorations. It was about this time of year, so we had lots of fall decorations. Carried the decorations that we'd been using back up to my office, which was on the third floor of the building. We were down in the basement. And I come back down, and all the students are gone. They're checked out. It was time to go. But the popcorn machine was still there. We'd been selling popcorn. So I, I went over to the equipment check-in and said, well, we still have the popcorn machine. He said, well, you've cleaned it out, right? I said, well, the students were supposed to take care of that. Let me go look. And it hadn't been cleaned out. He said, well, you can't return it until you've cleaned it out. So there it is, all the students that were organizing this, everyone was supposed to be running it, was gone. And I'm there at 11.30 and 11.40 and 11.50. Have you ever tried to clean out a full-size commercial popcorn machine, how long that takes? I think I left about midnight. Tons of, I have all these rags with popcorn oil there, and I'm, I'm thinking, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just supposed to make sure they don't hurt themselves. The students are supposed to be taking care of this, but they're all gone, doing whatever, probably uh, back in their dorm room, uh, playing video games or whatever, and, and I'm cleaning out the popcorn machine. This is not right. This is, I have rights here. I'm a professor. I'm not supposed to be doing this. Come on. This is, this is ridiculous. And I, I, I grumbled through cleaning it, and I grumbled out to my car, and I grumbled all the way home because I, I did not feel like messing with that. But I did. I had to, right? I, I wasn't going to get to return it otherwise, and then my office, which had signed off on the popcorn machine, would have been uh, fine for not returning it. It, it was just, it, 
I grumbled a lot. Well, uh, so far we haven't had a popcorn machine here for that reason, because <laughs> but it, it makes me think as I think back to that about how I was processing it. And what I was thinking about was, what are my duties? What are my rights? What should I be doing? And what should the students have been doing? And, and uh, I, I wasn't graciously saying, well, okay, they should have done it, but I'm doing it. No, I, I was grumpy about it. And we spend a lot of time in life thinking about our rights, our entitlements, the things that, that we should have. But as we turn to this next part of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus wants us to think about a different way of approaching things. And so let's come before our God and ask that he would guide us. And as he, he guides us, that we would see those places where we're holding on to rights that he doesn't necessarily want us to hold on to. That we would have a, a view of the world and of the things ahead of us that is like him. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word Thank you for this particular part of it that we're looking at tonight. And thank you for your son that you sent to, to turn away from his rightful place that he would take on our sins. Lord, as we think about what, what he has taught us here in this passage, would you help apply that truth to our hearts that we might have that same attitude to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We have it on screen, and it says this. This is very familiar, so let's just go very slowly at it so we don't race over it. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Have we all heard this a lot? I mean, we, we, we hear eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We toss that out. We have turn your, the other cheek. The, these phrases from this passage permeate our language. It's the way we talk at times. But do we really think about what it means? What's Jesus getting at here? We're talking about what, what rights people had. We think about rights in terms of crime. He's talking about rights in terms of crime. We think about those sorts of rights. In the United States, we think a lot about it in terms of Miranda rights. Everyone knows what those are, right? You have the right to remain silent, right? We, and, we, and what's going to happen if you don't? What's going to happen to what you say? Anything you say? Yeah, see, we could almost do this part of the liturgy, right? We, we know this stuff. I mean, uh, hopefully, I, I don't know. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you've actually had your Miranda rights read to you. Um, but certainly we've all heard it on TV and movies, right? We, we know, know this stuff. How many of you know the story of Mr. Miranda? Well, I, I was curious, uh, I, and I'd, I'd heard it a long time ago. I thought, I don't really remember it, though. So I went and looked up Mr. Miranda, and... He was a, I mean, the name Miranda Wrights comes from a particular man who was arrested and not read what would eventually be known as the Miranda Rights. And he'd been, there, there had been a kidnapping, and he'd been a man who throughout childhood, and he, as, even as a young boy was getting into trouble with the law, he'd gone off to a school for troubled children. Uh, then in high school, he'd gotten into more trouble. 
and as a young adult, he'd gotten into more trouble. He, he'd been in and out of jail for most of his life, He's, and so he was a prime suspect for anything, and, and when this kidnapping occurred, someone had spotted part of the license plate, and his license plate matched part of that, and so, so he was brought in and for a lineup and so on, and, and, and when he came off the lineup, he asked how he'd done, if, he, if anyone had, what, what people had said, and the police, apparently this hadn't, no one had actually picked him out, but apparently implied that someone had pointed him out to see if he would confess. And then they interrogated him for a couple of hours. And by the end of that couple of hours, they had gotten him to agree to write on a memo pad that he had done the crime and then took him in to see the victim who had been thankfully rescued. And he said, yes, that's the girl I kidnapped. And so there it was. And on the memo pad, it did indeed say that this could be used against him, but they didn't explain it to him. They didn't say he could be a lawyer. They didn't do any of the stuff that that you would hope that they would do. And so when it went to court, they took this written confession, presented to the jury, he was convicted. Well, a lawyer realized this seemed fishy, took it eventually through a process to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. You you have to read someone, his or her rights. You can't just trick them into confessing. And so it was sent back down, and, and that conviction was overturned. Ever since then, what do we look at for if someone's arrested? Have they been read their Miranda rights? Right? It's been established now. Sort of like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Here is a right. You're entitled to this right. And if, if something happens and you don't fit into this category, then, then if you've been wronged by it, then you have, a right, you, should, you have a right to complain about that. But you can't, and if you're an officer, you can't ignore that and pretend people don't have the rights. That's the sort of right we think about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this is the sort of right that the people of that time would have been very familiar with. It's part of the Old Testament law. God says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's not unique, though, to the Old Testament. It's a very common, ancient right. And you might say, right to an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? That sounds odd. But we need to understand the context for where this comes into play. And we can find all the way back in the 18th century B.C. So, Almost two millennia before Jesus, the Code of Hammurabi mentions the same principle. Now, we think eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and it sounds very uncivilized, right? Miranda writes, that sounds really civilized. Ah, we're, we're protecting people, we're setting up law, uh, protection, so you have lawyers and all this sort of stuff. Very, very civilized. But eye for an eye, ah, someone wrongs me and I get to take out their eye or their tooth doesn't sound very civilized. But here's what the purpose of that law was. It wasn't to say you should take out someone's eye or someone's tooth if they've done that to you. It was to say you can't do more than that. That you can't have someone injure you and then you go try to exert a greater injury upon them in order to say, here, you've hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you worse. And there are different ancient philosophers and, and writers that wrestle with this sort of retribution that would go on because you would have this spiraling cycle. Oh, someone takes out my tooth. I take out all their teeth. Then their relative kills me. Then my relatives kill a bunch of their family. You know, it keeps building. And so the point was, let's take it down and say, you can't take more than what's been taken from you. 
but you don't have to. We go to the grocery store and you see maybe on the end cap a, a deal and it says limit 10, right? You can only, the Pepsi's on sale and you can only buy 10 cases, right? Now, does that mean you need to buy 10 cases? Well, no. Can you imagine if you went to the grocery store and everything that had a limit on it, you had to buy exactly that amount? So you're, you're pulling down and you have t- your 10 cases of, uh, of, of soda and then you go down the can aisle and there's a sale on canned potatoes and it says limit 15 and then you have 15 cans of potatoes. You, you, then you, you go into uh, the, the snack aisle and it, it's a limit 10 bags of pretzels. You put those in and it keeps going all the way through the store. By the end of the store, you have 10 carts that you're pushing trying to take all this stuff, right? It'd be ridiculous. The point is you can't take more than that, right? It's a special deal. You can't take more than what it says. And that's the kind of sense that we have with this law that Jesus is interacting with here. You can't take more than what's been taken from you. But you don't have to take it all. You don't have to go up to the limit. This is limit one tooth for one tooth. Limit one eye for one eye. And even in that, in the Old Testament, the way it's working is in a judicial process. It wasn't meant to be, oh, I'm out one day and my neighbor accidentally hits me and before I even know what's happened, I've hit him back and, and established that we both are now blind in one eye. It's supposed to be a process. But it's supposed to say, here is the maximum sentence. And Jesus wants us to wrestle with that. Because for them, much as we often think today about this, we, we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I'm entitled to this much retribution, this much vengeance, then I'm going to get this much vengeance. This is what's owed to me. It's Jesus presents this to the people. He's not shocking them that he's saying eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But as he's saying it, he wants them to think, do I really need that much? Do I really need to demand everything I'm entitled to? Now, because this was a judicial process and because it was an example for a larger principle, while we're thinking in terms of violent sort of retribution, what we really are boiling it down to then is a set of rights. I have the right, if I do something wrong, not to, to have an overwhelming vengeance come upon me and vice versa. Jesus builds on this, though, as he goes along. He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now again, it seems like physical violence here, but, but what we need to understand about the, the slapping is that in the Middle East, even today, that's a very symbolic act. Well, sure, you could hit someone, and you could just hit someone to hit someone, but by taking your right hand and slapping someone in the face on the cheek, that was essentially the greatest form of insult you could provide. We actually see this insult applied to Jesus later in his life when he's being tried before the chief priest and he's slapped. It's presumably referring to this sort of insult slap that Jesus is actually referring to earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Because why would you slap someone that way? Why would you take what is a symbolic high insult and do that to someone? You do it because they're a heretic, because they blasphemed God. Because you think that they're the worst of the worst and you want to make sure it's very clear that everyone that witnesses what you're doing, that this person is bad. 
Why do they slap Jesus like that? They slap Jesus to say, Jesus has blasphemed the Lord, and we want to make sure that everyone knows that we think he's bad. It's not about the physical injury so much as what it would say. Much worse even than the physical injury. What does Jesus say, though? Okay, so there, there's this limit here. You're not going to take two teeth for one tooth. But then he's saying, even when someone insults you, what's our natural response if someone slaps me? Well, the natural response would be a slap back, right? If, if someone kicks you, uh, you, you're going to want to somehow respond. That, that's how we think in life. If someone insults us, do we want to insult them back? No, well, that's good. See, Jim, you are demonstrating sanctification working in your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in our sort of deepest human fallen sense, though, that's what we want to do. Someone is mean to us, our hackles get raised. They say they don't like what we're working on. Well, I don't really like what you're working on. That was dumb, Right? We certainly see this online. We see this online a lot because then there's not even the social filter. I need to be careful uh, because I'm talking to someone face-to-face. I'll just say whatever I want, and, and I could type faster those insults than the other person can, so watch out. Here I come, right? Uh, we're good at giving insults in, in our society. Jesus says, if someone's going to insult you, if someone's going to make you a mockery, if someone's going to make you look bad in front of your friends or your neighbors or your entire town, Say, go ahead and insult me again. I'll turn the other cheek. Go ahead, do it twice. He's saying, you don't have to take what your rights entitle you to. If someone insults you, could you say in the eyes of an awful lot of people, are you entitled to insult them back? Well, yeah. A lot of people would say, sure. You go and ask the, you did a poll of, of the average American if someone says something mean to you, can you say something mean back to them? And uh, most people would probably say, yeah, that's usually what I do. Or maybe if I'm really, really nice, I don't. But but we don't have to. But in our human nature, we're constantly looking for what am I entitled to and how do I get it? And we do that even on the smallest of things. If I got those 10 carts with all that stuff, and I hope I'm not at Aldi, right? Because then I need uh, 10 quarters to be driving those 10 carts. Um, although I'd be saving an awful lot of money on all those things I was piling into, into the cart. But, but I'd have all these quarters in there, and I don't want to lose those quarters, right? You want the, the quarter back. If you've if you ever been to Aldi, do you, do you get that sense? I, I go up there, and I take my quarter, I put it in the cart, and I know when I return that cart, I want that quarterback. You see someone coming up to try to take your cart, and you think, I sure hope this person knows this is Aldi, and, and they have to hand me a quarter to get the cart because my quarter's in there. I'm not giving up that quarter. Oh, no. And you think about that for a second. It's fascinating to me how determined we are. I want that quarterback. It's really nice when you go to Aldi. There aren't carts floating around in the parking lot, right, because everyone returns their cart. They don't at the other stores. Why? Because we want our quarter. And yet, what in the world do we buy with a quarter anymore? You can't buy a can of soda with a quarter. You, you, you could barely buy a piece of paper with a quarter anymore, it seems like. I mean, quarter, a quarter doesn't go anywhere, but I'm not going to give up my quarter. I, I have a right to it. That's how we do on, on so many things. We're constantly thinking of what is mine, and I'm going to hold on to what's mine. And I'm not saying you're, 
it's bad if we try to get our quarterback at Aldi. It's not. That's the whole point of it is to get people to return their carts. But isn't it amazing how we grasp on to whatever we're entitled to, no matter how small it is, and I'm not going to give it up. First part of what Jesus is saying is, it's okay to give it up. It's okay to, to let go of, it's, it's a, a limit on what absolutely in society you're entitled to or not entitled to, but you don't have to take it. In fact, in fact, it'd be better if you didn't. Someone slaps you and insults you, just let the insult come in. Someone hurts you, you don't have to hurt them back. Why? Why not? Why shouldn't I hurt them back? Why shouldn't I get what's mine? Why should I give up that right to what's mine? It's because not only is our, are our lives not genuinely centered on what our rights are, what our lives should be centered on is following the one who gave up the most rights. So we go on in, in, in verse 40. Jesus goes even further. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It sort of seems straightforward, but also is useful to think about what he's referring to here, because again, he's referring to the law that people would have been very familiar with here. The first part as he refers to the cloak and the tunic, is referring once again back to the Old Testament. And here's what the Old Testament says about cloaks and tunics. So you could require from someone, if they owed you something, their tunic, their, their undergarment that they were wearing, but you couldn't take their cloak because that was their outer garment that would keep them warm at night as they slept. And, and so by ta- if you were to take their outer garment, they might freeze to death. They wouldn't be safe from the elements. And so the Old Testament says, you can't take that overnight from somebody. And Jesus says, yet if someone demands it from you, if someone, if you owe someone something and they say, give it all to me, go ahead and give it all up. Now, as commentators rightly point out here, Jesus isn't advocating that when Christians go into court, they go in and they take off all their clothes and they leave the, the, the courtroom without any clothes on. That, that isn't his point. Sort of sound, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, definitely, amen. Um, what he is saying is, even when the law says that we don't have to make everything right, or we don't have to give beyond what we owe, that we should be willing to. That we shouldn't be looking at what's the bare minimum I can get away with, and then hide behind the, the cloak, as it were, of the legal protections. That's not our purpose. Jesus says, if they want to take your cloak too, go ahead and give it to them. And in that, he's thinking of all the different ways that people demand from us. And we say, well, I should in all rights give you this, but I'm not going to go any further than that because I don't have to. He's saying, go ahead. Because here's the point when we think about what God has given us and what we have and what could be taken from us, our reason for having it is to be a blessing to others, not to find a way to use our rights to have ourselves be blessed. 
And so often we're not thinking in terms of how can I take things, even things that people are trying to, to take advantage of me on and give to be a blessing. I'm thinking, how do I make sure not to be taken advantage of? Because people are going to take advantage of us. And clearly, clearly Jesus isn't saying in every single case, always just keep giving and giving until everyone in the church is completely stripped of all money and all clothing and all everything, and they all starve to death and the church closes down. And, and there's no, no church anywhere in the world because everyone knows they can just rip off the Christians and, and then it's over. Like everything that we've seen in, this, in, in the Sermon on the Mount so far, Jesus is going to the utmost extreme, but what he's trying to challenge us to do here is to think on those places where we're more protected than we need to be. Those places where I'm not going to lose that 25 cents and if someone doesn't offer me that quarter as I'm walking out of the store to take my, and they want my cart, I'm going to make sure to demand that, that 25 cents from them. He's saying, it's okay. It's okay. W- when you're at a restaurant and you, you give the tip and the waiter doesn't get the clue that you're supposed to get quite as much change back, maybe it's okay. Just be a blessing. Because what it really comes down to is understanding God's love in relation to us. Now, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will make this same statement, but interestingly, the statement we're going to look at next comes immediately after this this section of of topics that Jesus is addressing in another sermon he gives in Luke. In Luke 6.31, right after talking about eye for an eye and so on, he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. What is that? We, we have a name for that? Golden rule. Golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a, a very popular thing that Jesus has to say, at least in theory, right? If you talk to people that aren't Christian, they say, well, you like anything Jesus has to say? Oh, yeah, I love the golden rule. It's really nice. Do we all live by the golden rule all the time? Oh, no. No, we, we fall short of it, right? But here's what Jesus wants us to be thinking about, and I believe why he puts the golden rule up against this instruction. He wants us to think, where am I located in in the position of rights in the overall scheme of life, and am I demanding more than I really should be? Do I understand what's being done to me that I am so glad is being done to me? In particular, do I understand what God is doing for me? Do I know my rights? Yeah, I, I, I know my rights. I know what I'm entitled to, right? Sometimes we, don't want, we, we are going to be sorely disappointed if we demand our rights. I mentioned the, the story a little while ago of Miranda and, and his rights, and, and here's the, the rest of his tale is really kind of sad and tragic. So it, it seems like he actually may have been guilty of, of that kidnapping. I, I don't know for sure. So that part isn't sad that he was convicted again, but he was convicted again. Uh, they, they went back, retried him, and then with the evidence surrounding him, not, not, not the confession that shouldn't have been admitted, they convicted him and, and put him in jail for a number of years. Then he was released on parole, and he, he came up with a way to maybe be at least a marginally better member of society. He realized instead of, of committing various crimes— he had a name now. People knew him because he had, he, was, he had the Miranda rights named after him. And so he would carry around cards with Miranda rights on them and sign them for people. 
you could buy a signed Miranda rights card from him for $1.50. And so he always had these on his, on his person. He was always handing these out and, and selling them to people. Well, one night he was at a bar and he had, had these cards with him and there, a fight broke out in the bar. And during the fight, someone stabbed him and killed him. Police came and caught the guy. Guess what he did? He used his Miranda rights not to confess anything. And before they were able to convict him, he escaped and was never found. And so here it is that this man whom th these rights are named after and was trying to then use that to his advantage ends up dying and his killer is protected by the very right named after him. His rights weren't enough to save his life. His rights weren't enough to make his life good or whatever that would have looked like. Neither are ours. We think we can hold on to our rights and, and, and how much today, do turn on the TV, people are constantly talking about their rights, their rights to this, their rights to that. We think somehow our lives are going to be good if we just have enough rights. But as I look at my rights and I know in, before God what my rights are and where those rights end, we quickly realize that we're in a very, very bad spot if we're going to depend on rights. Before God, I, I deserve something, and that, deserve, that thing I deserve is punishment for my sin. I deserve to be cast away forever. Miranda, as he, he held on to his rights, in fact, he died with those Miranda rights cards in his pocket. Didn't save him. And as we cling to our rights and our demands, they won't save us. But what are we told? As we think about doing to others as we would like to have done to us, that God has done to us what we do not deserve. He hasn't held on to his rights. He hasn't demanded, because I am the holy God of the universe, I should smite every one of you and cast you off into eternal separation from me. What has he done? What did Jesus do as he preached this and then went through his ministry? He went and allowed himself to be wrongly convicted and put to death for us. What else did he do in that process? When we think about as he had that last supper with his disciples, he took those 12 who had committed sins that he was going to die for and instructed them to carry something forward. To all of us who have done sins that were part of his death, to come and eat with him, to receive his body and his blood. That the one who gave up his rights for us doesn't just stop there and say, okay, I'm not going to demand a tooth for a tooth. I'm not going to demand an eye for an eye. What does he do? He says, I'm going to take your punishment and receive it upon myself. And then I'm going to invite you over for a meal. And I'm going to keep inviting you over for that meal for, the, for all eternity because you are now a part of my family. He laid down his rights. And as he calls us to contemplate our rights and as we interact with people each day, he calls us to remember that he is the one who has laid down his rights for us. May we know our rights and then lay them down at the cross and realize that we're called to be a people who represent the one who had the most rights and set them aside for us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, such a struggle for us. We, we want what's ours. 
We want to not be taken advantage of. We want to to make sure that everything is on the up and up for us and that when wrong does come, that, that we're put in the right place again. So as we come before our Savior who, who didn't demand that, but instead laid down his rights for us, may, may we see that. And as we not only want, but need, desperately need for that to happen, to receive that mercy that we do not deserve. Would you help us to be a people of mercy as well? As people look at our lives, they see in us people being made more and more like Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen.